0: Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Abba Father by Pastor Sean Wood. If you'd like to meet me in Romans chapter 8, just a brief note. um, We will finish Romans chapter 8 this month um, and then we will move in September. We move into a series on reaching out, um, which is impacting earth with the power of heaven um, and encouraging and spurring each other on to reach out. To those that are lost there's two guys, uh, one by the name of Barry, one by the name of Sam. been friends for a long time. But Barry's concerned for his friend Sam because Sam's developed a drinking problem. goes on for some time, and Barry thinks, "I'm going to need to intervene in some way. I'm going to need to try and get through to Sam about the harm that he's doing to himself and to everybody else. And Turns out that they're in a bar one night and Barry comes up with a great idea and, and Sam runs off to the bathroom. He says to the barman, he says, can you put a glass of water and a glass of whiskey on the bar for me? The bartender says, yeah, sure, no worries. So he puts a glass of water, he puts a glass of whiskey on the bar and, and Barry takes some worms that he's got and he puts a worm in the glass of water and he puts a worm in the glass of whiskey. And by the time Sam's come out of the bathroom, the worm that's in the whiskey's died. And the worm that's in the water is still thriving and still alive. Barry calls Sam over and he says, now, Sam, can you see these two glasses here? Sam goes, yeah, I can see the two glasses. And he goes, what do you see, Sam? And he says, well, I can see a glass of water there, Barry. He says, I can see that you've put a worm in the glass of water and that it's still alive. He says, that's correct. He says, what about the other one? He says, I can see you've put a glass of whiskey on the bar here, Barry, and I can see that the worms died. He says, Yes. He says, Do you get it, Sam? He says, Barry, he says, I think I finally get it. He says, I finally get what you're trying to tell me. Barry says, What's that? He says, If I keep drinking whiskey, I'm unlikely to get worms. <laughs> How many people know? How many people know that Sam just didn't get it? (laughs) And what I'm going to talk about today, and what Paul begins to expose in Romans chapter 8, many of us don't get it. Very powerful scriptures that we're going to come to now, and Paul is going to use some enormously powerful words. In fact, next week we're going to look at words in Romans 8 like foreknowledge, predestination, all these spooky Calvinistic type of words. John Calvin never invented them. John Calvin was an enormously fantastic expositor of Scripture. But you can't understand foreknowledge and you can't possibly understand predestination and you can't possibly understand any of those words unless you fully understand the key word that we're going to look at today and it's not Abba Father. There's a key word in this passage That speaks about our position in Christ, which is why we can say, Abba Father. Paul says in verse 12, if you've got your Bibles, Romans 8 verse 12, he says, so then. And the minute he says so then, he's reaching back to what he just said. Now, Romans 8 begins with, there is now, therefore now, no condemnation. That that is a beautiful, beautiful verse that we have moved out of condemnation, you leave all of your shame behind, you leave all of your sin behind, and you come into a new realm. Jesus has brought us out of condemnation into a new realm. And then we come uh, to what we spoke about last week, which is walking in the Spirit. And of course, walking in the Spirit is about our daily life. It's it's about uh, the daily habitual conduct of our life. That's our walk. Paul says, if you want to walk in the Spirit, it's easy. You've got to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. And we unpack that word in the Greek, which means it's one word which they have taken four words to explain. But it's one word which means to be preoccupied with. The question is, it's not about what you think about. It's not just conjuring up thoughts about God necessarily. It's about the entirety of your life becoming preoccupied. You're preoccupied with the Holy Spirit. You will not live your life according to the flesh. Paul says, so then, brothers, because of all of that, we are debtors. Now, depending on what translation you're reading, uh, you will either have we are debtors or we are under obligation. I wish, I wish the ESV had it used under obligation because it is far better translation of what the Greek is saying here. Paul says that we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We are under obligation. It's, it's important that we begin to understand that we have a new obligation. We're going to unpack that in a moment, more about that in a moment. But Paul wants to know that our obligation has changed. Paul says, because now you have come into a new realm out of condemnation to a life in the spirit, you no longer live your life under obligation to the flesh. And it's now that I want to press the pause button and unpack what Paul really means about the flesh. Because sometimes we get this part of it mixed up. Sometimes we think flesh is just those carnal mere appetites that we all have. Well, that's actually not what Paul's Talking about. They are more the evidence or the fruit of the flesh. When Paul uses the word flesh, he is talking about the pattern of this world. So, what Paul is saying to everybody that he's writing to, the Roman Christians, made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians, what he's saying to them is, you don't have an obligation anymore to the pattern of this world. Very important for what's coming up on July 27th. Uh, Why do I keep saying July 27th? What happened on July 27th? Nothing. (laughs) But on September the 27th. The The reason is, so often as Christians and even as churches, it's very hard to tell the difference between the church and the world because the world is obligating to us. The world is determining for us the pattern of our conduct. Let me take it to um, stuff that we may understand. We have allowed, and we cannot increasingly allow, we have allowed the pattern of this world to tell us what marriage is and that we should redefine marriage. What a crock. God defines who marriage is and what it is. We have increasingly allowed the world to tell us when life begins. No, nobody create, nobody here creates life you don't get to determine that we have increasingly allowed the world to subject us to what gender is if i had a dollar for every gender i would still only have 2 dollars the united nations currently recognizes 32 different genders where do you get the other 30 from i'm not sure but it goes. of course it goes further than that. It goes to our individual lives. We allow what we see on television. We allow what we read in magazines. We allow what we hear at work. Paul says you're not obligated to conduct your life that way anymore. Marriage is completely different now. You're not obligated to view marriage that way. It, it, it determines how we view marriage everybody and everything, including God. So the flesh is the pattern of this world. What happens in the appetites of our lives is the fruit of that, which is very important as we begin to speak about what comes up next. Because Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, or we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Some translations, if by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen wrote a book, Mortification of the Flesh. If you've read it all, God bless you, because I couldn't get through it. It's pretty pretty intense. But uh, there are people sitting here today wondering, how is it that I overcome those things that are in my life? We spoke a little bit about this last week, and we're going to continue to speak about it today. Because uh, often we think the pursuit of holiness is walking around hacking off rotten fruit that's in our lives, when what happens is you hack off the rotten fruit, but then you end up with rotten fruit again. And then you hack off more rotten fruit that's on the outside. We think that holiness is what what it is that we cut off externally in our lives when, uh, like we spoke about last week, the gospel came to take the plug out of the sink. Remember that analogy? Remember how, you know, in the sanitarium people are still mopping the floors? The gospel came because you continue to mop floors when the root problem is inside. Every single one of us have a root which determines the fruit of our lives. And the only way you change the fruit is by changing the root, and you don't have the power to do that. It's exactly why Paul says, by the Spirit we put to to death the deeds of the body, and we will live. I want to read you a passage of Scripture. Nothing has changed in many thousands of years, and nothing changes in your individual life, and nothing can change inside of church life. We have to embrace this. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God, if everybody started there, the world would be a better place. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now have a listen to who's hanging around. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now have a look at what happens. And God said, let there be light. You read the rest of the chapter. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. And every time God said, there was an action that followed it. And if I say right now, I'm going to turn the lights off, I've still got to walk to the back of the room and flick the switch. When God says something, his actions are combined with his words. And if you want to do something about the root in your life, Jesus had a word for the root in our life. It's called our heart. If you want to do something about the root in your life, you've got to expose it to what God says. If we want the operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it has to be by what God has said. C.H. Spurgeon says beautifully that the Holy Spirit rides upon the chariot of the word of God, not the opinions of man. I don't care what that preacher in the US said. I don't care who wrote books. I don't care what seminary they studied in. If they are not, if it's not God said, then get it out. And the only way we change the root in our life is by exposing the root of our life to his word and to the gospel. I love this about the apostles. We get to Galatians and Paul says, I opposed Peter to his face. Peter was there before you, Paul. Peter walked with Jesus. Now, what was Paul's problem? Paul had a problem with Peter because Peter was acting one way around the Gentiles when the Jews weren't there. And then when the Jews would come, he would act a different way. You know what Paul doesn't do? He doesn't walk up and call him a hypocrite. He doesn't walk up and call out Leviticus or any of those scriptures. He says, you know what, Peter, your conduct is outside and unaccording to the gospel. His appeal was, you need to saturate the root of your life, Peter, in the gospel because you are treating people differently. When we saturate the root of our lives, it will change the way you treat the person sitting next to you. It changes attitudes. It changes desires. It changes appetites. You mortify the deeds of the flesh by dealing with the root that's in your life. And it's by a supernatural power. Holiness is actually something you can't do. That's what the law highlighted. Paul goes on. And he says in verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, I make no apologies for this, but if anybody approaches me, and I've had pastors come to me and say this. I've had leaders in other churches come to me and say these three words, most dangerous three words in church, God told me. If you ever come to me and say God told me, I'm going to ask you how you came to that conclusion and what part of the Bible you can find it in. Because God's getting the blame for a lot of stuff that he didn't say. And Paul now says that for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And what he's not saying is, the way you become, he's not saying to become a son of God, you have to be led by the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. He's saying for those who are sons of God, that's everybody in this room, sons and daughters of God, you now have a whole new life. You have a whole new nature. Now the, the, what preoccupies you is being led by the Spirit. I've seen some really wacky stuff on YouTube that people call being led by the Spirit. It doesn't line up with this here. It doesn't glorify God. I remember uh, back in uh, Lagana, Lagana Church was full of many fly fishermen, so they couldn't catch fish, but they, they, no, they could catch fish. One of them, a beautiful guy, he's an elder there, Steve. One year he came to me and said, you know what? He said, we're gonna, he said, I'm going on a fishing trip to New Zealand. My first question to Steve was, awesome, what guide are you using? And he said, oh, no, 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 me and a friend are going. And we've decided, we've decided that we're going to, we've got the maps and um, we know what we're doing. We're just going to guide ourselves. Set your clock to that one. Okay, no worries. Anyway, I, I remember saying to his wife, how's Steve going in New Zealand? And she said, well, ask him about the rescue chopper. I said, okay. So when Steve comes back, I asked him about, yeah, had a great time fishing, saw some great fish, caught some fish. Yeah, okay. I said, what's this about a chopper? He says, oh, you've been talking to Donna. Anyway, what happened was uh, these guys, two guys that decided that they would lead themselves, decided that they wouldn't consult the map. A lot of people looking around saying, I'm led by the spirit, but I don't know what map they're looking at. But they decided that they weren't going to consult the map. (laughs) And uh, they got horribly and totally lost. But they had phone reception, praise God. And they make a phone call out and say, listen, we've got to admit we're lost. And the the rescue team said, we're going to chopper a party in um, and stay where you are. There's people in this room today that God's telling you to stay where you are. And the reason that they were told to stay where they are, it's because if you keep walking, you're going to make this worse. We know where you are now, so sit still and wait for us to come to you. And there's people here that need to hear the voice of God telling them, sit still and wait for me. Otherwise, you're going to continue to make it worse. Be still and know that I am God. But these guys sat and waited and, and Steve said it wasn't actually that long and the rescue party's there. They were horribly, totally lost, but 500 metres from the car. And there are there are Christians, sadly, disciples of Christ sitting in church pews today that are totally and horribly lost, that are sitting right next to the most beautiful truth that we're about to unpack right now. You think that pleasing God, there's people in this room that think that the Christian life is all about what you do and that getting God's favour, grace, is all about what you've done and that we think that acceptance, if acceptance was based on what we did, God would never want us. But because it's based on his grace, and we're going to unpack grace now, and so many people have distorted grace, and here's how to know if you've distorted grace or whether you've got grace right. If grace to you is liberating you so you can sin, if it frees you to sin, you've got it wrong. If grace for you is the empowerment to free you from sin, you've got it right. God's unmerited favour is the power that sets us free to leave sin behind and pursue a new life. Verse 15, very, very powerful verse now. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We'll cover that one in a moment. But you have received the spirit of adoption. And if you have a highlighter and a pen today, underline and highlight the word adoption. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, and yes, in the Greek, that's sons and daughters for the ladies in the room today, as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Those two words, Abba, Father, by the way, are found three times in the Bible, in the New Testament only, and we're going to unpack those in a moment. But when Paul uses the word adoption here, Adoption was the place and condition of someone to whom it did not naturally belong. Every single one of us in this room have been elevated to a position in Christ in which we did not originally belong and we do not deserve. You did nothing to earn it. That's God's grace. But the word adoption that Paul is drawing on here is from the Roman analogy of adoption. So let's explore uh, under the Roman law of adoption... It meant four things primarily, but it also had four enormous privileges. First thing was that under Roman law, if you were going to adopt somebody, you had to pay all of their debts and all of their obligations. So if somebody, and uh, Roman law uh, permitted you to adopt an infant, it permitted you to adopt uh, an adolescent, it permitted you to adopt an adult if you want. There were a lot of Roman people, Roman citizens that were quite well off but had all daughters, pray for them. But looking for an heir, they would adopt a son. So if they came with a $5,000 obligation, you had to pay the debt. Starting to sound a little bit familiar. You see, when God wanted to adopt us, he had to pay all of our obligations first. Second one was that, at the, that they received a new name and they instantly became heir of all. You received a new name and a new identity. And you became an heir of all. And the father from that point was liable for the conduct of the one that they adopted. That's number three. Completely liable from that point on. For all of your conduct, here's the fourth one, which many of us breeze over. Uh, the fourth thing under was that the one that was adopted now had a whole new obligation. Sounds a little bit like this: when that child was adopted into another family, basically, without saying it, this is what it meant. It meant that I don't care what your mum and dad said. I don't care what your name used to be. I don't care how you used to do things. I don't care what your grandmummy said. You're in my family now. You bear my name now. You act and you live according to somebody that bears my name. That was the obligation under Roman law, and that is the example and the metaphor that Paul is drawing on when he uses the word adoption. But it had some enormous privileges. And Paul has outlined the privileges that we have under our adoption. The first one is that we have security. Have a listen to this verse again. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery. What's the difference between a slave and a son? Because both live in the house. Hold on to that thought. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have a position that is secure. You don't have to fall back. You don't have to recede. You don't have to walk away or drift away from God. You don't have to be afraid anymore because he's paid all of your obligations. You don't have any debts anymore. You've come into a new family. You have security. Here's the next one. You have authority. The authority we have is as sons and not as slaves. Let me try and unpack that a little bit for you. When we, and we might do this in our Reaching Out series, when we read at the end of the Gospels, Jesus at the Great Commission, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, Now go. What's he saying? Here's my authority, you take it. And sometimes we mistake authority for power. I remember when I was playing football, there were thirty six players on the field. They had the power to take you out. They had the power to knock you down, but they had no authority. There was two people on the ground that had authority. They were the refs. Now, the players could knock me down. The players could probably knock me out if I wasn't looking. But the ref could take you out of the game. He had the authority that wasn't given to him. He was given authority by an association called the NTFA, the Northern Tasmanian Football Association. Now, the football league that I played in was only a country football league, and because they got sick of the fights... And because they got sick of uh, one game ended with one of the refs locking himself in the change rooms and he wouldn't, he wouldn't come out until the police turned up. And so the NTFA stepped in. Uh, I remember the, the best team we had in our division was a team called Hagley. They had a fantastic team. They had one problem. They couldn't keep the t- team out of jail long enough to play the finals. And uh, Annette will tell you, oh, she was there. They, they were rough. I mean, you had to be more worried about the crowd. I mean, if you got near the boundary line, whew, But... Uh, The NTFA decided, well, now we're going to put in a set of rules and regulations and we're going to give the refs all of the authority. That's what Jesus did for us. And now, whenever those refs are on the game, as long as they make a call according to the book, (laughs) as long as they're making a call that's according to the rules and according to the book and according to what has been handed down by the association, they get the full backup of the association. You see, the players could knock me down. The refs could write it on a piece of paper and take me out. They could, You're out. They had authority that the players didn't have. If they blew their whistle, the game stopped. This world right now, the culture that we're living in, the world that we're living in right now, needs the sons and daughters of God to stand up in the authority that Christ gave them. Because we're allowing the players to dictate what's happening on the field when we need some referees blowing whistles. As part of the adoption, we have been given all of the authority that comes with the household. You have the authority of the one of whose name you bear. Let's move on. Paul says, We have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The third privilege of sonship is intimacy. It's what I asked a question, what's the difference between a servant and a son? You see, the servant's still in the house. The servant lives in the house. The servant operates in the house. The servant is close to the father, but they don't have the relationship that the sons do. They don't have the authority that the sons and daughters do. They don't have the place with the father that the sons and daughters do. The difference between a slave and a son is a slave is in the house doing what they do because they have to under the law. Paul had a word for that under the law, under the old covenant. (laughs) But now as sons, what we do for God, we do now because we want to. That's the big difference the gospel makes. The big difference the gospel makes is that when it gets to the root of our lives, it changes why we do stuff. It changes how we do stuff. Now, Lord God, when we fully understand grace, we will stand here and go, I don't have to, I want to, Lord, and how could I possibly do anything else? In light of the enormity of your wondrous grace, how could I possibly do anything else? And now Paul says that we have an intimacy under adoption by which we cry Abba Father. And it's deliberate that he uses that Aramaic term because Abba Father was reserved specifically as a reference from a son. The servants never used the word Abba. It was only reserved for sonship. Now Abba Father could also be translated Daddy Lord. That's that's another way that you could translate it. Daddy, it's an infantile reference. It is, in other words, if you think of a two or three-year-old, they've got complete dependence. They've got complete reliance upon. They look to their parents for everything, including teaching them how to fish. Many people live their Christian life without realising that they have this place before God. The Christian life is not a set of formulas. The Christian life is a relationship. The last one, if we keep reading, verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit testifies or bears witness with our spirit. There is an assurance. Now, The best way to understand what that testify is, the best way to understand uh, this uh, inward witness that the Holy Spirit gives us is a word that we call assurance. The last privilege of sonship is that we have an assurance. And it kind of sounds like this. It kind of sounds, uh, imagine that you're in a court of law, you're the defendant and you've been charged with murder and there's there's X amount of evidence on the prosecution side and there's X amount of evidence on the defence side and they're both kind of even. And amidst all of that evidence, one more witness walks in and says, hang on a second, I was actually there at the scene. I saw the whole thing, and this person was never even there. That testimony, that witness has just taken all of the evidence and confirmed it, you're innocent. And it's in the same manner that this word testify or bear witness is. All of the evidence that you read in Scripture, all of those that you read, the Holy Spirit comes and testifies on the inside of us, yes, I am a son of God. In fact, in Galatians, Paul says it is by the Holy Spirit that we cry. Same as he says here, Abba Father. It is a cry. Abba Father is a two words from the heart more than the lips. Speaks about a relationship with God and an assurance that we have before Him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back now and uh, we're going to finish with a song. But before we do, I want to share with you the powerfulness that comes with this word adoption. Some people here kind of know my story a little bit, but um, back in Tasmania, I was a ward of the state. The word adoption's got a big big part for me personally, because I was a ward of the state when I was 12. Through a certain set of circumstances, I became a ward of the state. And immediately, I was thrust into a system that is broken. And please don't judge the system, because there are really, really good people inside of that system trying to do a really, really good work. Unfortunately, uh, they're trying to do it with half the resources sometimes. And I can remember being thrust into the system, and I went to many, many houses. I, I, some houses I was there for three weeks, sometimes I was there for a month, sometimes you're there for a couple of months, but you never felt like you were any more than a business transaction. And I can remember one house I went to, um, their the child had an accident, I was blamed for something I didn't do. And because of that, I couldn't be in their house, and I nobody else wanted me in their house either. And uh, in the end, they found somebody um, if you ever want to know whether angels actually exist, go to 23 Box Street in Launceston. Because I was sent to a lady's house for two weeks. Uh, I remember my welfare officer driving me there and saying, look, I, I'm just going to put you here for two weeks until something crops up and uh, you're able, we're able to find you a house. I said, yeah, cool, no worries. And um, at the point in time when I got there, uh, this lovely lady, uh, Mari, she had, uh, she had a teenage girl there. She promised she'd never have teenage girls again. She had three more. Um, She said, she's a beautiful lady. And I can remember the phone call that changed my life. The phone call that changed my life came about five weeks later when Welfare rang up and said, listen, we're sorry. We did tell you two weeks and we're really, really sorry. We were going to come and get him and we're, we're trying to make arrangements. And what changed my life was she said, you know what? He's just fine where he is. You leave him where he is. And... In an instant, for me personally, she didn't even, what she said was, "Leave him here." What I heard was, "I want him. And when I read Romans chapter eight, and I get to that verse, I read about a God that's not in this for a business transaction. And yet, the powerfulness of this is that when we get to the word foreknowledge. You begin to understand the powerfulness of a God that wants you. Foreknowledge is a predetermined decision by God to set his love and affection on you. And for me, the word adoption has got some great power. Because what I hear in that word is a God crying out from heaven, I want you. We're going to sing a song now and if you need prayer, if you need to do business with God, then the front is always open. But let's pray as we finish Right now, Father, I thank you, and I pray that every person in this room hears those words, I want you from you. Thank you that you wanted us when when we were your enemies, Jesus, you walked up a hill with our cross on your back. So that we could be adopted, you paid all of our obligations, so that we could be adopted and have an inheritance with you. Father, we are thankful that you want us. Thankful for the blood of Jesus that purchased us. And we worship you not only with our lips, Lord, but may it be with all of our lives in this place. Let us sing together as we finish this morning. Thank you, worship. Thank you, Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available,